I feel like growing up uh, in the church that I grew up in, uh, almost every single week or what felt like every single week, uh, we were singing what I thought was the quintessential song uh, in the church where we were at. It was Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Once upon a time, I was lost. I, I, I wandered away. I lost my way. I couldn't find my way back. I, I was lost, but something happened, and now I'm found. I was blind. There were some things that I couldn't see. There were some things that just, it didn't occur to me that I didn't know. I was blind, but now I see. And then the last verse of that song says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and it will be grace that will lead me home. Uh, that's the story of grace. Uh, that's your story, that's my story, that through all the dangers, toils, and snares, uh, you have come to this moment, I have come to this moment. It's been grace that brought us safe thus far, and it will be grace that will lead me and you home. It's gonna be grace that got us in, it's gonna be the grace that helps us to work our way through. And when it comes to the grace of God, we love to sing about it, and we love to read books about it, and, and, and it's just an incredible subject to consider. It's, it's amazing, it's marvelous, it's extraordinary, it's, it's breathtaking, it's heart-stopping, it's all the adjectives that we could place around it, and every single one of them would be true, but each one of them would fall short of just how magnificent the grace of God is. Now, we love to think about the grace of God when it comes to God giving us grace and, and we receive that grace. We, we love that. That, that, that's wonderful. That's, that's a great deal. But when it comes to grace between you and me, when it comes to re relational grace, when it comes to grace in each other's lives, that's the grace that is not so magnificent. It's not so extraordinary because it's not natural and it doesn't come easy to us. It's not intuitive. Uh, it's just not our default position to extend one another grace. Even though we have received grace from God, it's just not natural and intuitive for us to give grace to each other because it really rankles with our sensibilities that says that we're all supposed to earn our own way. Uh, we're supposed to keep up. We're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. And if we don't, there's a price to pay for that. And this internal belief somewhere inside of us that everybody should ultimately probably get what they deserve. And in most of our relationships, that's kind of how it often works, that we treat people the way we think they deserve to be treated. When grace is the opposite, grace is treating someone better than what they deserve. Now, Jesus, he showed up on the planet and Jesus knew that we have a resistance to grace. So he, he began to try to tear down those resistances and those arguments against grace by telling stories. And he would tell stories about the extravagant grace of God and how, how magnificent and how amazing and how marvelous it was. And that God's grace is without limit and it's without condition. That God's grace is without limit and it's without condition. And, and it's just so amazing to even just stop and think about that for a moment. And he would tell the story about the prodigal son, my favorite story that Jesus told. And he would tell the story about how that, that little jerk of a younger brother, he, he came up to his dad one day and said, dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead, uh, I, I'm just gonna treat you as though you're dead. And I, I, I wish that you would act as though you're dead and just go ahead and give me my, my cut of the inheritance. And so the father surprised everybody and, and that's exactly what he did. He gave his son the inheritance and his son left. 
And his son went out and spent all the money, did what he wanted to do, lived the life that he wanted to live. There were no rules, there were no constraints. And he lived the way he wanted until he ran out of money until he ended up in the hog pen. And as the story goes, he realized at that moment that the only place that he could possibly turn was back to his dad. But he had no conception that he would go back to his father's house as a son because he'd embarrassed his father, he'd disgraced his father, he'd gone out and done all of this, and so he had no hope of going back as a son, but he thought, best case scenario, maybe my dad will hire me as one of the hired servants, and I can go back, and I can just be a ranch hand, and just work on the property. But when he goes back, as the story goes, the father sees the son, and the son's coming back, as we've been talking about. The son is messy, and he's broken, and his life's in shambles, and and he's covered in the remnants of that hog pen and this father breaks all rules of decorum and he comes off the front porch, runs towards his son and puts his arms around him, dirty and all, mess and all, broken and all. And then he says, hey, let's have a barbecue, let's have a party. My son who was dead is now back home. Let's put a ring on his finger, let's put sandals on his feet and somebody get a clean robe, let's get this kid cleaned up. My son has come back. And so he comes back as a son. And everybody who listened to that story was like, oh, that kind of grace is staggering. That kind of grace is amazing. And God, Jesus was trying to make the point, that's how God feels about sinners. That's how God receives sinners. If you're messy and you're broken and you're in the hog pen, you can come back home and you don't have to be afraid. And as magnificent as that was, as compelling of a story as that was, there was somebody in that story who was offended by the grace of the Father. And it was the older brother. Because as amazing as grace can be to someone, there can be somebody else that offend, is offended by grace. And so the older brother, he, he was, didn't think his brother deserved a party, didn't think his brother deserved the ring, didn't think his brother deserved the sandals, and, and he wouldn't even come into the party because of his self-righteousness. And he was angry and he was frustrated because his younger brother had received grace. And that's how grace works. For some, it's amazing, and for others, it's offensive. Uh, Jesus told the story one day about how many times we should be willing to forgive each other, and he says you should take your cues from your heavenly Father whose grace is without limit, is without condition, and you should just forgive each other 70 times seven, or in other words, just an unlimited amount of forgiveness you should be willing to extend to each other because every single one of you, you're messy and you're broken, and when you get in close proximity with other messy and broken people, it's gonna be very messy, and it's just gonna be a broken down thing, and it's gonna get nasty, and it has the potential to be very very difficult. So you're going to get mess on each other. Your baggage is going to spill out into other people's baggage and their baggage into your baggage. And it's just going to be messy. So you got to be willing to give grace to each other. You got to be willing to forgive each other. Unlimited amount of grace towards one another. And for some people, they heard that and they, they were just amazed by that thought, but others were offended by it. Others had arguments that they mounted internally to say, well, what if this and what if that and what about in this instance? And, and it offended some people. Uh, Jesus told the story, it's one of my favorites, that he told about uh, a guy who went to the local marketplace to hire some workers and he hired some guys at the very beginning of the day and said, I'm gonna pay you a full day's wages if you work for me. And they said, yeah, we're in, done, we'll go work. And then he went back out at the midday and he hired some others and said, hey, uh, if you'll come work for me, I'll pay you. And then he went out right before the end of the day, like with an hour left in the work day and he goes out and hires another group of workers. And when it came time, when the work day was over and it came time for the boss man to settle up with all the 
workers. He ended up paying them all the same wage, a full day's worth of work. And if you were one of the workers who came in at the end of the day and got paid for a full day's work, this kind of story was amazing. But if you'd been there all day or even been there a half a day, and the people who didn't hardly work at all got the same amount of compensation as what you got for working all day, and they worked barely an hour of the day, it was a bit offensive. Because grace, as amazing as, as it is, it can also be offensive to our human sensibilities. And Jesus told a story about 99 sheep who were smart enough not to get lost and about one sheep that was dumb enough to get lost. And he wandered away and lost his way and couldn't find his way back. And so what did the shepherd do? In this act of incredible grace, grace, excuse me, he, lay, he leaves the 99 and he goes out and he looks for the one and he brings the one back. And it could have been offensive to those who considered themselves the 99, those who considered themselves good at being good, those who considered themselves commandment keepers and rule keepers, and those who you know, considered themselves holy and righteous, that why would the shepherd be willing to leave the 99 who wasn't dumb enough to get lost to go after the one who was dumb enough to get lost? And it was marvelous if you're the one. It's a bit offensive though if you were the 99. Jesus, he just kept teaching about this grace of God and, and what it means for us and then how it's supposed to flow out of us into the lives of, of other people. And, and not only did he talk about it, but he also demonstrated the grace of God. When he touched the untouchables, when he loved the unlovables, uh, grace was in what Jesus said, but grace was in how Jesus said what he said. And, and that's a big deal. It's just not about saying truth, but it's about how we speak truth. It's just not about speaking the truth and letting the truth be said, but it's about speaking truth in love and with grace. And it's just not what Jesus said, but it was how he said it. It was the disposition of his face when he said it. Uh, John, who was one of the four fishermen that we talked about last week that Jesus invited to follow him. Uh, John, when he tried to describe what it was like being that close to Jesus, this is what he said. He said, the best way I know to describe it is that the word or, or God, God became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. We, we had the front row to his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That the best way I know to describe it, John would say, is that Jesus was all truth, all grace, all the time. All truth, all grace, all the time. And that Jesus had come to show us what the Father was like. That there was only one who's ever seen the Father and Jesus is the one who pulled back the curtain to make God the Father known, saying when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John said when we listened to what he said and we listened to how he said it and we looked at his disposition and we noticed how he interacted with people. People who were very different than what he was. People who didn't share his way of life, who didn't share his view of the world, we noticed something. He was all truth, all grace, all the time. And sinners loved it. Sinners were attracted to Jesus. We, we've been talking about that. But the self-righteous, the hyper-religious, the religious establishment of Jesus's day, they were offended by Jesus. They accused him of compromise. They accused him of being an enemy of the faith. They accused him of working against the kingdom of God, not seeking to expand the kingdom of God. John says, the only way I know to tell you is that Jesus spoke uncompromised truth and he did so by showing unconditional grace. He never watered down the truth, but yet he never turned down the grace. John said, that's who Jesus was.
Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about in this series a really big idea about the local church, about Jesus followers. And this is what we've been talking about, that what was true of Jesus should also be true of his church. What was true of Jesus personally should be true of us collectively. That Jesus, as we've noticed in the gospels, Jesus never rejected, Jesus never rejected those who were messy or broken. And we said, neither should the church. That the church is to be a place where messy and broken people know that they can come and be welcomed and be loved and find a message of hope Jesus never rejected the broken, he redeemed the broken. Jesus was a friend to sinners, people who were messy and broken and messed up, people who had made one mistake after the other, those who'd been excommunicated from the religion of their day. Jesus was a friend to those sinners. And those sinners, they liked Jesus. They crowded around him to listen to what he had to say. And if Jesus was the friend to sinners, so should his church be as well. Jesus was full on grace, full on truth, and it did not prohibit him from receiving the messy and broken. It did not keep him from being a friend to sinners. Jesus saw those who were far from God as lost, not as the enemy, not as a nuisance, not as the problem with the world. He saw those far from God as lost, as helpless, as sheep without a shepherd, who needed a shepherd, who needed to be found. So Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. That's the thing that I'm most passionate about. I see those out there who've lost their way, they can't find their way, and I'm going after them. And if that's what Jesus says, that's what his church is supposed to do as well. So Jesus was always moving towards the mess, he was meeting people in the mess, and then he would invite people to follow him in order to move beyond their mess. And that's what we call faith. We call it following Jesus, that you believe Jesus is who he says he is so much, you're willing to begin to organize your entire life around who he is and what he said. But it's a process and it takes some time. And sometimes it takes an entire lifetime for Jesus to change our life. And some of us, we get there faster than others. For some of us, we take 10 good solid steps and then we take 11 back. Some of us, we're good at putting one foot in front of the other. Some of us, not so much. And so last week we talked about the fact that we're all in process together. We're all being changed as Paul said, from one level of glory to another, though it doesn't look like glory very often. Sounds more like a mess of broken things. But we're all being changed. We're being conformed to the image of God's son. And here's, this, is, this is the takeaway from last week. We said, so let's be patient with each other while we're still in process. You're gonna have to be patient with me. I'm not there yet. I'm gonna have to be patient with you. We're gonna have to be patient with each other because we're not there yet. We're all in process. And that's what makes the church the perfect place for imperfect people. The church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. Let's all, let's all just say that out loud together. You ready on three? One, two, three. The church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. People like me, people like you, people like all of us, the people that are not here yet. Now, when it comes to perfect people, there's two ways of dealing with imperfect people. There's a way of what I would call the law way of dealing with imperfect people and the grace way of dealing with imperfect people. Uh, the way of law is what most of us kind of default to. Uh, when, when we kind of treat each other on a basis of law, I treat you based on how you measure up. How you measure up to my standard, whether that's God's standard or my own standard or a political standard or a social standard or a behavioral standard. Uh, I, I'm gonna treat you based on how I think you measure up, whatever that standard is. And the better you measure up, the better I treat you. 
The more you fall short, maybe not so good will I treat you. Uh, the way of law says, I'm gonna keep score about how well you do. And, and how well you're doing is really gonna be dependent on how well we do together in a relationship. And, and, and if you start losing, if you start having you know, a really bad season, probably me and you're gonna have a really bad season as well because I'm only gonna treat you as good as what you deserve. The way of grace, however, is when I treat you kindly and respectfully, I treat you as someone who's created with dignity and innate worth. I, I treat you in a way that I desire what is good and best for you. I, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna forgive you, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna accept, accept you, regardless of how, fall you may, uh, how, how much you may fall short of my standard or whatever standard it is. I, I'm gonna treat you better than, than what you deserve because that's the way of grace. I'm not gonna treat you the way you deserve. I'm gonna treat you better than how you deserve. And when I fall short, you're gonna treat me better than what I deserve. That's kind of the way of grace. Law says you broke a rule. You stepped out of line, you're out. Law says if you don't conform, if you don't become more like me, then, then we can't be together, you're, you're out. A law says get your act together or there's no, there's no place here for you. That's the way of law. Uh, the way of grace says, hey, you stepped over the line. That was wrong, come back in. The way of grace says, you know what? I understand, you're in process, I'm in process. I gotta be patient. There's gonna be times where we fall down. <laughs> A righteous person may fall down seven times, but they get back up. Good people do bad things. Great people can do dumb things. So we're in process, we're human. You're human, I'm human, I'm broke, you're broke, I'm messy, you're messy. Hey, so come on back in. Don't, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. I'm not gonna be hard, too hard on you. Just come on back in, let, let, let's get this right. Grace says, I'm not gonna condemn you, but I love you, so go and sin no more. Th that's grace. And that's the gospel. The gospel is this, that God has decided to deal with all of us on a basis of grace rather than the basis of law. If, if God would have dealt with us on the basis of law, the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. If God was gonna treat us the way that we deserve, we deserve death, we deserve hell, we deserve eternal separation from God. That's kind of the storyline. But God doesn't treat us as we deserve. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but, the Apostle Paul wrote, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, that God has decided that he is gonna deal with us on a basis of grace. He is gonna treat us and do for us better than what we deserve, more than what we could ever earn or merit. It, it, it's the story, it's the gospel that he who knew no sin, the perfect one, the perfect law keeper died for lawbreakers, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become right with God, that we can be right with God even though we fall short, that we can be right with God even though the wages of our sin demands death, that God has decided to deal with us on the basis of grace. And there's nothing more attractive about the gospel than the front and center message of the grace of God. Unconditional, unlimited, unmerited, undeserved, unearnable grace that no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be right with God, not because of who you are or what you've done or not done, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. That Christ took your sin, took my sin, took my sh sin, took my shame, and he went to the cross and there died for our sins so that we could take his righteousness so that we could be justified by faith and that when God sees us, he sees us just as though we had never sinned and just as though we had always kept the law that all of us 
had broken. So God decides to deal with us on a basis of grace. That's the gospel. And the gospel that we have believed and the gospel that we have received is the gospel that we're supposed to live out with each other. And the grace that we've received from God is the grace that we're supposed to extend towards one another. That when we fall short, we decide to extend grace. We treat one another better than what we deserve. We don't make people earn their way with us. We don't assume that people are gonna have to pay their way. No, we decide that we're gonna extend grace ahead of time. And so today I just wanna take a few minutes and I wanna talk to you about how easy it is for all of us to drift away from grace and drift towards law. To receive grace from God, but to begin to treat each other as though we're dealing with each other based on law rather than grace. And, and it happened to a group of believers in a group of, uh, in, a, in an area called Galatia, where Paul had started uh, a church on his first missionary journey. You know, he'd travel around, he would preach the gospel, tell people about the grace of God. There would be people come to faith in Christ. And then he would organize the church, train the leaders, and then he'd move on to the next place. Well, then he would follow up to see what was going on in the church because he, he wanted to make sure that the church was doing well, that the church was healthy. And then he would write letters back to these churches based on some of the reports that he got, which is why we've got many of the letters that we have from the apostle Paul, because he's writing in response to some information that he's received from people on the ground. So he hears that in Galatia, this church that started so well, this church that embraced the grace of God that they were now beginning to drift from grace back into law. And it was happening among some of their key leaders. And so this is what Paul wrote to them. He says, I am astonished, I'm flabbergasted, I'm behooved, I cannot believe this. And he's a bit frustrated. I mean, this, is, this is something that's really passionate to the apostle Paul. And there's a lot of energy behind what he's talking about. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel so you're drifting away from this message of grace, which is really no gospel at all. It's, it's not good news. The law is not good news. It doesn't offer you good news. Uh, the law only offers you news. The law only reminds you that you are messed up and broken. The law only brings you the news that you have fallen short, you're guilty. You have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. The law, that's the news that the law brings. It's the grace of God that adds the good to the good news. It's the grace of God that makes the news that the New Testament brings to us good. Grace says you're guilty, but God's grace is greater than your guilt. God says, you know, hey, you are messed up, but my mercy, it is greater than your mess up. My mercy can take care of the mess up, so come on in. Yeah, you've fallen short, but I've got a gift for you anyway. You, you don't deserve it, you can't earn it. The wages of your sin, it's deserving of death, but I. I but the good news, the gift that I'm willing to give you is eternal life and you don't deserve it, it's just grace. So they're drifting away from good news and he says, that's no gospel at all. He says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He says, so there's some stuff going on in this church and he says, I'm, I'm upset about it. And he goes on to say, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you. So if somebody comes in and starts teaching you something different, let them be under God's curse. And this, this would just be, if Paul was speaking to us in our language today, he said, if anybody comes in and gives you another gospel that, that is not front and center, the grace of God and what God has done for you through Christ, he says, to hell with them. Let them be eternally damned. Let them be cursed. 
He said, this is a big deal. And then he says it again. He repeats himself. He says, and as we've already said, so now I'm gonna say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So this is emotional to Paul. This is something he feels like I've gotta stand up and I gotta say something. He's frustrated because he knows that this is at the heart of the good news itself. And Paul knows that when Jesus walked on this earth and when Jesus had his earthly ministry, that the thing that made Jesus so attractive was grace. Where else would Simon the leper, where else could he have gone to find grace in his day? Could he have gone to the temple? Could he have turned to the law? Could he have turned to the priesthood? There was no mercy to be found. There was no grace for Simon the leper and people like Simon the leper to find grace except with Jesus. Where would the woman caught in the act of adultery that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where would she turn to find grace? in the midst of her mess and brokenness. She's gonna turn to the temple. She's gonna turn to the religious establishment. Only could she find grace in Jesus. The woman that Jesus met at the well in Samaria at noontime, where where could she go to find grace? And, And Paul knows, Paul knows that in the world that he was living in then, and he knows it's true, even in the future generations of the church, where else are people gonna go to find grace if they cannot turn to the church? And if the world ever needed to see grace in action, it's today. If the world ever needed to be able to come and experience grace within the confines of the local church, it's today. In the cancel culture of our 21st century culture, the cancel culture of the right, of the left, and of every place in between, that if you don't get in line, if you don't walk the line, if you don't agree with us, lock, stop, and barrel, you are out. There's no grace in the tribes of today. The Republican Party is not a party of grace. The Democrat Party is not a party of grace. And all the other little segments and fragments in between, there's no grace there. You either walk the line, you either think like us, Vote like us or you're out. You see the world like us or you're out. And if not, you're canceled, you're done. If the world ever needed to experience and see and hear grace, it is today. And if they can't turn to the local church to see, to see grace in action, where else could they go? So this is Paul's point, this is a big deal. We have the good news of the gospel. And if people can't see the grace at work in our lives, the grace of God at work in our lives in the way that we talk to each other, treat each other, the way that we talk about and treat those who are not even part of the faith, Paul says there's problems. Paul goes on to bring some light to this whole matter. He says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated the ranks to spy on the freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to try to make us slaves. The freedom that he's talking about is freedom from the law. That we don't, we don't believe that we have to keep the law in order to be right with God. We don't have to keep the commandments in order to be right with God. We have broken God's law. And it tells us that if we've broken one part, we've broken the whole part and we are guilty of breaking the whole law. So we don't believe that you have to keep the law in order to be right. We're made right with God because of an act of God's grace. We aren't accepted, we're not blessed, we're not anointed, we're not loved, we're not brought into the family of God because of something we've done or not done, but entirely on the merits of what Christ has done for us. And this is at the very heart of what makes Christianity Christian, what makes it like Christ. And Paul says, 
Don't dare for a moment think you and God are good because of what you've done. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you and God are good. You and God, you've got things right because of what Jesus did for you. So the gospel, the grace that you freely received, live it out and express it in the relationships of your life. Paul says, there's this group of people, they're corrupting, they're perverting, they're bringing confusion. And he says, I want you to know that we did not give into them for a moment. We didn't give into their pressure. They were loud and they were bold and they were proud. We didn't give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And the lens of what Paul's thinking about is just not you in that first century, but for you and for me and for future generations. He said, if we would have given into them, if we would have drifted from grace to law, we would have lost the good news and the future of the church would be put at risk. So he says, we didn't give into their pressure, even though they were intimidating, even though they were loud, we didn't allow them to crush the message of grace. We didn't allow them to stomp out the culture of grace within the church because we're trying to preserve the good news for future generations. We didn't give into that mentality that says, hey, if you wanna be one of us, be like us. If you wanna be with us, then act like us, look like us, dress like us, vote like us, see the world like us. If you wanna be part of this thing, then you have got to be just like us. He says, we didn't, we didn't go that route. We didn't drift into that. And we resisted them. And we didn't give into them for a very, for a single moment, not for a single moment. But then he points out that some of the most surprising people had conceded drifted from grace into this idea of keeping law in order to be right with God. He says, when Cephas, that's Peter, we talked about Peter last week. When, when Peter came to Antioch, he, he recounts an experience that these two guys had. He said, I opposed him to his face. And this is amazing. That's why I love the New Testament. I mean, it just gives you the whole thing. I mean, this idea that these people were superhuman or not like us. I mean, these are people just like you and me. He says, when I, when I encountered what Peter was doing in Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I got in his face and I stood right nose to nose with him because he stood condemned. He was wrong for what he was doing. And so now he's gonna tell us what in the world was going on in Antioch that caused Paul to get in the face of Peter. I mean, this is like the two heavyweights. This is like the two popes of the church going after it with each other. You know, Peter was thought of as the apostle to the circumcised Jewish people. And Paul was thought of as the apostle to the uncircumcised Gentile world. So, so these two men were the two primary leaders, the stars of the church. And, and Peter says, you know, or Paul says, I got in Peter's face. And he tells him the story, he says, for before certain men came from James, and James is the half-brother of Jesus, he's, he's a pastor down in Jerusalem. He, he was known as James the Just because uh, he, he was great at keeping the Jewish law, and it was, it was a contextual thing because he was trying to lead Jewish people into faith in Jesus, so he met them on their terms. He, he was kind of taking the nod from Paul, become all things to all people, and so he was in Jerusalem, so it made sense for him to give a nod to the law, not because he thought that you needed the law to be right with God, but in order to build a bridge to the people that he was trying to influence. So James is a pastor and there's certain people who come up from Jerusalem. Now, there's some other, there's other instances where this is talked about that almost gives us the idea that James really didn't send these men. That these men, they showed up and they said, James, he has sent us. Uh, just for extra credibility and a little extra influence. But these guys who come from Jerusalem, they're hyper-religious, they're extremists, they're, they're ultra-conservative. 
Uh, and, and this particular group of, of people, they, they cared most about being Jewish. They cared so much about being Jewish. They cared so much about their rituals and about their traditions and about their laws and about all of that. They cared more about their national identity than they did anything else. They cared so much about being Jewish, they had lost the ability to think Christian. Because anytime you and I are more in love with another identity, if we're more in love with our religion, our tradition, our nationality as Americans, anytime that matters most to us, it creates a problem for us to think Christian. And I think that's where the church is. And we're gonna talk about this next week in, in detail, but right now the American church is struggling because there's so many Christians in America that are having difficulty thinking as Christian first and as American second. They're thinking as Americans first and Christians second or third. Being an American and being a Christian, those two lines of thought do not always flow in the same direction. And you can have someone who's extremely proud of being an American, of which I am, and I'm thankful to God for this country. But you can be so proud of being an American that you forget how to think and behave and act as a Christian. And we'll talk more about that next week. But this is where these guys were. They were so in love with their traditions and rituals that they had lost the ability to think as Christian. And so when that happens, it's only a matter of time before you unlove your neighbor. When you care more about all of that, most, you will unlove a neighbor at some point in time. So he says to Peter, he says, now before Peter used to eat with Gentiles because Peter had had this vision while he was in Joppa up on top of, up on, you know, top of Simon the Tanner's house and this vision where God said, Peter, there's, there's no such thing as unclean food. I, you know, just eat. You, you don't have to abide by those dietary laws of the Old Testament anymore. You just go eat. All the food, it's good, it's clean, good, go at it. And then after that, he goes into the house, and this is 10 years after the resurrection. For the first time, Peter walks into the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, who was a centurion. He, he, he was part of the Roman army, and Peter went into his house, and it was the first time he'd ever been inside of a Gentile house because he thought that being inside a Gentile house was somehow gonna make him unclean or unholy or you know all of that. So, so Peter really has a change of heart. He goes into Cornelius' house, Cornelius gets saved. Now all of a sudden, Peter realizes that the gospel is just not for the Jewish people, it's also for the Gentile people, it's for the world, it's for whosoever will. And so now he just eats with anybody. And now he eats everything. Hey, shrimp, oh yeah, bring on the shrimp, come on. Bacon, praise Jesus. Yes, sir, bring that bacon, come on. Extra crispy, all right? I don't want it to be where it's just a good vet away from a resurrection. I want it to be, I want it to be, and he's, so he's just eating you know, all this food with all these Gentiles and he's hanging out and, and it's just this freedom of being free from the law and this grace and, and it's just, this is how Peter lives, except these guys from Jerusalem show up and Peter feels the pressure Peter feels judged. Peter feels as though he's risking his reputation to eat with these Gentiles because all of these hyper-Jewish people, they've, they've showed up and they're looking at Peter and they're saying, what in the world are you doing? Why are you hanging out with those people? Why are you eating like those people? Those Gentiles, they're unclean. We're not even sure if they can be Christian because we think in order to be Christian, you've got to practice the Jewish law. Matter of fact, to be Christian, you gotta become Jewish first. And specifically, specifically, if you're gonna be Christian, you gotta be, if you're a Gentile, you gotta be circumcised. You're gonna to have to have a surgery to be Christian. And of course, Gentile men, that seemed like a big step to follow Jesus. It's like, I, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I wanna do, do I have to do that? And so there was this debate where some people thought in order to be Christian, you had to get circumcised. 
But, but Peter, it didn't bother him for the longest time. But it says, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision. He was afraid that he was gonna be ostracized. He, he was afraid that he was gonna be put out of the tribe. He, he was afraid that his reputation was gonna be harmed. He was afraid of what they were gonna think about him or think of him or say about him. And so he began to withdraw. And he decided that he wasn't gonna be with them anymore. And he was gonna leave their table. And he was gonna leave all their messy brokenness and he was gonna go find him a table where people were less messy and less broken. And all of a sudden he decided, I'm not gonna associate with those people. I'm not gonna sit at the table of those people who are messy and broken like that. I'm gonna find a group of people who are less messed up and less broken. I'm gonna hang out with them. And so he moves away from grace and he takes a step towards law. And this is what, this is what Paul says, this was a big deal. He says, and the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, and we were talking about pillars of the church, leaders of the church, even Barnabas was led astray. So Barnabas and Peter and some of the others, they were making these new Gentile Christians feel like second-class citizens, feeling as though they were in some, some way not on equal ground with the guys at the other table. I mean, it's like middle school. You're not at our table anymore. Your table's not the cool kid's table. Your table has cooties. So stay away from our table. And so it was a bit embarrassing. It was a bit demeaning for all the people that Peter and Barnabas left behind to say, somehow you're not good enough. You don't look like us and you don't eat like us and you don't see it the way that we see it. And somehow you're less accepted, you're less worthy, you're less loved, you're less blessed, you're less anointed. The only problem is we never find Jesus making people feel that way. In the gospels, when messy broken people came to Jesus, he didn't make them feel like Peter and Barnabas was making those people feel in Antioch. And that's the reason Paul got ticked off. And he said, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, they had received the gospel, but they were not living it. They had received the gospel, but they were not expressing it. They had received it vertically, but they were not embracing it horizontally. When I saw them not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, you're a hypocrite. You don't live like this. You've been eating with these people the whole time. Now you're intimidated. Now you're, worried, you're, you're afraid of what they're gonna say about you. And this is real easy. Again, we'll talk about this next week. This is real easy for Christians to do. And it's real easy for preachers like me to do. That we preach to our preacher friends or the church down the street or somebody else to think that we are strong, that we are conservative, that we are all these things that they think that we should be. And so we'll say all the things that we think we're supposed to talk about so that we can check the boxes to feel good about ourselves because we don't want anybody to think anything bad. They don't, we don't want anybody to think that we're doing it wrong. And Peter gave in to the pressure. And in doing so, he unloved some neighbors. He unloves some people. He goes on in the next few chapters and he starts making this case for grace, but then he gets to chapter five and he gets to verse number six and he says, 
whether there's circumcision or non-circumcision. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And this is what he says, the only thing that counts, the only thing of value, and this is where we pick it up next week, the only thing that counts is a faith expressing itself through love. A faith that expresses itself through love is what matters most. It's what matters most. You and God are good. You've been justified. You've been set apart. You are sanctified. One day you will be glorified. You and God are good. But what's going on with how you're treating other people? That's what matters most. The thing that matters most in this hour is your faith expressing itself through love. It matters more than the politics of the moment. It matters more than your freedom that you think is being infringed upon. It matters more than your interpretations theologically on second and third tier issues. It's what matters most. It's the fact that you have received a gospel of grace, good news. But there are some people in your life that you are currently unloving. But the thing that matters most is a faith that expresses itself through love because the greatest expression of faith, the greatest expression of faith is love. Jesus said it's the most important thing. There's nothing more important than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. And as we'll see next week, you love, you have kept the law. The spirit of the law that was there the whole time. So Paul says, are you extending grace to the people in your life currently who don't measure up, who disagree, who get on your nerves? Are you showing mercy and grace to the people who are outside of the body, who are far from faith, that are not your enemies? The people that you're supposed to befriend? Have you forgotten that the gospel says no matter who, no matter what, you're invited in? Have you forgotten that you fell short of the glory of God, of the standard of God, and God did not give you what you deserved? God did not reciprocate what you should have been given. God decided to do something better. He decided to give grace about you, but I am grateful to God that when I came to him, messy and broken, he knew it all. He knew everything. And the one who knew me most, who knew me best, loved me the most. He knew the darkest parts of my heart. He knew the most vile parts of my imagination. He, he, he knew it all the ugliest of the ugly. But in my mess and brokenness, he said, come on in. I've got a seat for you at my table. Sit down with me. Because when I see you coming, I don't see you as an enemy. I don't see you as, I see you as a son. I see you as a daughter. So come on in. And the gospel you've received, live it out. Show grace, extend grace, express your faith with love. Because it's what the hour requires 
We dare not drift away from grace because when we do, we drift away from the good news. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you give us what we do not deserve. You treat us better than we deserve. You speak of us better than what we deserve. You have justified us so that when you see us, you see us just as though we've never sinned and just as if we have kept your law always, even though we hadn't. Thank you, Jesus, that you became sin for us so that we could be right with our heavenly Father. And this grace that is so magnificent and so marvelous and so amazing, And as difficult as it may be, allow that grace to be what we show one another. A grace that is staggering and heart-stopping and breathtaking. That when the world looks in at the local church, they see some messy and broken people trying to move beyond their mess and dealing with all of those around them with grace. In Jesus' name, let that be true of us. And everybody said, amen.